0: Tell us what you were doing at the FDA, how you got involved at the FDA, um, and and what the process was like before uh, all of the news happened in the last couple of weeks.
1: Sure. So I'm, a, I'm an internal medicine physician, and I run a research group that focuses on pharmaceutical development and the evidence-based use of medications. Um, and I so you know I also I teach FDA law at um, Yale Law School, and um, I've done over the years I've done a lot of work with uh, with scientists and colleagues at the FDA. We've gotten you know grants and contracts from them to do research, and I've presented often um, you know to various groups at the FDA. So I've you know got a lot of friends and colleagues um, there, and um, so in 2015 they um, invited me to join one of their advisory committees. And so in advisory committees, there are, um, you know, dozens of different advisory committees that they have, but they're um, committees of outside experts um, that are um, impaneled to bring an independent perspective to, um, you know, particularly controversial questions on drug approvals. And so they asked me to join the peripheral and central nervous system advisory committee um, you know, to bring my insight, you know, relating to um, both patient care and um, you know how evidence is generated and and used. Um, and uh, and so that was in 2015. And so since 2015, I've been on you know um, probably four or five different uh, advi- different advisory committee meetings around different drugs. Um, and again, the FDA usually brings advisory committees together um, when, there's a, when there's a particularly difficult question, happens about 15 to 20 percent of the time uh, for, you know, relating to new drug approvals. Um, and then, uh, you know, these advisory committees are um, everybody gets together, uh, you, you know, pours over some data that they send us and, you know, provide some insights on, on questions that the, that the committee, um, uh, that the FDA develops. Okay. Uh, one thing, is that your computer or mine? That might be my computer. Let me, I don't know. I, I, let me, I'll close my email and there was maybe like a that ringing. Way. Yeah. Uh, it's okay.
0: It's not a big deal, but, um, if it is, if you can shut it, that would be great.
1: Um, uh, I, I just shut, I shut down my email. So hopefully it won't, it great. won't bonk.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so, Okay, so that that's what you were doing, and so what? I think a lot of people have heard about a drug gets approved uh, for Alzheimer's. Some people are excited. Hey, you know, this is something that, that that medicine has been trying to crack forever. But then it becomes this big scandal about whether the drug even works. So, from your perspective, lay out what happened when it came to this drug.
1: Well, um, so Alzheimer's disease is a a terrible disease, and uh, there are not uh, good therapies out there, Um, and there certainly aren't, you know, no therapies that alter the course of the disease, and, um, you know, for decades, scientists have been trying to come up with drugs that might affect Alzheimer's disease, and unfortunately, um, none of them have shown that they actually um, you know, alter the trajectory of, of cognitive loss uh, in the disease. And um, this drug, um, aducanumab, um, was designed as a, a monoclonal antibody to target um, amyloid plaques, which are um, protein deposits left uh, around um, the brain cells. And um, there is an association between having amyloid plaques and, uh, you know, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So it's not a, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of people of Alzheimer's disease who don't have amyloid plaques, but having amyloid plaques increases the likelihood that you'll, you might have Alzheimer's disease. And so scientists have thought that if we can target these amyloid plaques and clear them from the brain, that we might, um, be able to, uh, affect the course of Alzheimer's disease. Unfortunately, there have been a lot of drugs over the years that have targeted amyloid plaques and uh, end up not affecting cognitive function. So we don't really know enough about the amyloid plaques to know, you know, how it is that they impact the the trajectory of Alzheimer's disease, you know, and and so so this drug, um, the controversy arose um, based on this drug because this drug does a really good job um, targeting amyloid plaques and the manufacturer Set up two clinical trials to try to test whether or not it affected the progress of um, the progress of Alzheimer's disease, and um, and those trials, um, sorry, those trials were um, those trials were organized uh, as two parallel trials, and they um, they were st- uh, initiated in around 2015 or so. And about halfway through the trials, um, there was a uh, an analysis that was done, a pre-planned analysis, where the trials were examined, and were um, merged together, and the um, manufacturer observed based on those trials that they that there was you know no evidence that it was having any effect on the um, outcome, and so this in, an independent data safety monitoring board organized by the company. Um, declared that the trials were futile and that the drug uh, didn't work. And so um, Biogen announced that they were pulling the plug on the development of this drug. After they announced that, um, the, the manufacturer went back and looked at the trials individually rather than, than um, together and noticed that in one of the arms, in one of the, the arms of one of the trials, it looked like there was a signal that the, it looked like the, the uh, course of Alzheimer's disease was improved. Um, and, uh, and it, whereas in, unfortunately in the other trial, in the same arm, in the other trial, um, there was no effect on the, on the outcome. And so what the out, what the manufacturer then did was it worked with the FDA to go back and reanalyze these studies and try to understand why the positive trial was positive and why the negative trial, um, was negative. And then, um, ultimately, uh, together the FDA and the company concluded that they thought that this was a real signal, um, for, you know, real benefit and that the, the, that one positive arm of that one trial, um, was, uh, was legitimate. And so that was the question brought before the advisory committee is, you know, is there legitimate evidence of uh, of clinical benefit based on this one positive arm of this one trial in this you know reanalysis of the data, such that that would allow us to approve the drug? And um, as an advisory committee, we reviewed all the data, and uh, the advisory committee voted virtually unanimously um, that there was not this was not good evidence that the drug worked. And uh, suggested that the FDA um, reject the drug and instead just require further testing to try to understand what was going on here, and which, which one is the right which one was the signal of positive effect or negative effect? Which of those was, was, um, was really happening? was, was, was the, you know the real thing. That would require more research, not approving the drug. And so that was what the advisory committee voted um, that I was a part of. That was back in November of 2020. Uh, And then in June uh, of 2021, the FDA announced that it was approving the drug. Um, But it wasn't approving the drug based on its ability to affect the course of Alzheimer's disease. It was approving the drug based on its ability to target amyloid plaques, which, as I discussed before, you know, there isn't really good evidence uh, thus far that targeting amyloid plaques makes a difference in treating um, Alzheimer's disease. But the FDA um, sort of switched gears in the last six months and uh, instead approved the drug based on this ability to target amyloid plaques. And that was the basis for the controversy.
0: So you ended up resigning the advisory board in protest of the FDA's behavior. Um, What do you say to those who would say, well, listen, you know, if the FDA wants to approve a drug for a specific uh, purpose, even if the specific purpose isn't shown to actually deal with the underlying disease or there's not provable evidence that it that it is, what's the big deal in the FDA approving it uh, at least for people who want to try it? I mean, I'm making I'm sort of I, I'm not making this argument. I'm saying what 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 do you say to those who would say, listen, Alzheimer's is terrible, so sort of throwing anything out there uh, that might have a chance to work isn't a bad idea.
1: Well, I mean, I think that, uh, that this, is a, this is a very uh, common argument, but the, the, the response is, is that, um, you know, the reason that we have the FDA is to ensure that drugs are tested to show that when they come onto the market... We know that drugs will work and um, and we know that the and we're, we expect that the benefits will outweigh the risk because this is a, by the way, this drug has is a is a you know, potentially very unsafe drug. About a third of the patients in the clinical trials had evidence of brain swelling or bleeding. And so um, there are a lot of uh, important harms that could be associated with this drug and it would be very uh, dangerous and um, counterproductive for um, for patients with Alzheimer's disease to, um, you know, to be uh, using a drug where there's no evidence that the drug works. And, you know, for many decades, we had a pharmaceutical market where, you know, it, manufacturers could just bring products onto the market if there was some hope or promise that they would work. And as a result, the market was flooded with you know, dozens and, and hundreds of, of products that actually didn't work, um, but were sold to a large number of patients um, for ex- usually at, at high prices um, and had a lot of, you know, patients where, where they had a lot of side effects associated with them. And in the 19, early 1960s, um, we gave FDA the authority to require that drugs be tested to show that they have some evidence that they work before they can be widely sold. To prevent this very thing from happening, because you know it's a very it's a very very complicated decision. It's very very challenging for individual physicians, or even individual even individual patients, or even individual physicians, to make individual determinations about a drug. Um, you know, without some you know uh, reassurance from uh, from independent um, evaluators that there is solid evidence that the drug works. And so uh, the reason that the FDA exists is to try to provide um, that measure of quality um, in our pharmaceutical market and, you know, markets for other products as well. But we're talking about drugs right now. Um, but the reason the FDA exists is to provide some reassurance that there is um, solid evidence that a drug works before we ask a person who's sick and who is um you know, uh, need, you know, needs help to consider, uh, taking that drug and using that drug for their, for their health.
0: So what is the takeaway here from your perspective in the sense of what's, what do you think went on? I mean, is this corruption? Is this the drug companies have too much power over the FDA? Is this the FDA is too, uh, lax in trying to, uh, push out drugs whose, uh, efficacy is un unproven. I mean, what what is what do you suspect is really going on here?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's a, a lot of different things. I, I think that um, it, it does seem like there was a, um, a high level of coordination uh, between the drug manufacturer, Biogen, and the FDA in this case. And um, my perception is is that level of coordination in reviewing the the data in, um, you know, in, uh, in, you know, making a decision you sort of in, in making decision about which pathway to approve the drug on, um, that level of coordination seemed to be higher than usual, um, for other, you know, for other drug approvals. And so, um, you know, I, 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 think that, um, we really want a, uh, you know, an FDA that is independent of the industry and, you know, enforces um, reasonable standards for, for getting new drugs on market. I mean, we don't want, you know, we don't want every drug to, to be required to go through, you know, decades and decades of research. That would be, um, that would be counterproductive. But we do want there to be some, um, you know, baseline level of, uh, of you know, of a sort of rigorous scientific evaluation that a drug goes through. And I think that, um, you know, over the last few decades, um, there has been a, uh, you know, overall a, a sort of an increasing flexibility of, um, you know, of the standards that the FDA uses in, in approving new drugs. And uh, and again, in some cases, that's um, really appropriate. It is, you know, and the FDA should try to bend over backwards to um, to get new drugs on the market to treat unmet medical need, like like for Alzheimer's disease. But there is still, the FDA still should uphold minimum um, minimum standards for for drugs and and for a drug like Atacadamab where there was no good evidence that the drug works and in fact conflicting evidence, some suggested some evidence suggesting that it didn't work um, and and you know and some signal that it did work, the right answer in that case is to try to do a definitive trial to um, try to resolve that question before putting it on the market and um, you know allowing um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to um, spend a lot of money on this drug and, and, you know, and suffer the risks of the harms for this drug. And so I think that, um, you know, I think that the FDA made the wrong decision in this case. And so one of the reasons that I, that, you know, sort of, um, uh, resigned from the committee um, was to try to bring attention to what I thought was um, not only a bad decision, Um, But a potentially problematic decision making process uh, in this case to try to, you know, bring attention to uh, try to figure out exactly what question you just asked. Like, why is it? How is it that the FDA arrived at this decision? Um, And how is it that we can prevent such bad uh, decisions from happening more frequently uh, in the future? Because I think, you know, I think that the FDA does make the right decision um, most of the time. And I think that it's important when the FDA doesn't make the right decision to try to figure out how it was that that happened and to try to dig into the um, the process and, and figure out where it went wrong. For those who don't
0: know the history of the FDA, uh, your New York Times op-ed tells the story of thalidomide. Can you just tell us that story and how it relates to the creation of the FDA and the story uh, that you're telling now about what, what has gone on with this Alzheimer's drug?
1: Sure. So the, the story of thalidomide was that a, a pharmaceutical company in Germany uh, developed the, developed thalidomide um, as a, uh, you know, as a treatment for, uh, for nausea and for, um, you know, to try to help calm, uh, calm people. Um, and, um, widely sold the drug in Europe and then tried to, and then a, a company in the U.S. bought the rights and tried to sell the drug in the United States. At that time, um, drug companies were only required to submit basic safety information to the FDA um, before they could then widely sell the drug. Um, and uh, fortunately, in the case of thalidomide, um, the dossier for thalidomide landed on the desk of a, uh, a very savvy um, FDA reviewer named Francis Kelsey who noticed some inconsistencies in the data and tried to um, encourage the, uh, more data to be collected and and uh, try to figure out what was going on and so kept delaying entry of the drug despite a lot of pressure on her from her superiors at the FDA and from the company to just um, you know give the okay for the drug to move ahead. Ultimately, what happened was that evidence arose from Europe that this drug was. Um, actually um, a very severe teratogen and caused very severe birth defects um, and so a lot of a lot of children were born um, thalidomide children were born in Europe at, you know with exposure to the drug and had very severe uh, deformities and you know fortunately in the United States we were saved from that tragedy not because of the rules we had um, that required drugs to be tested but because of this one heroic um, FDA reviewer at the time and that experience, Inspired Congress to change the rules and to require more rigorous testing of drugs, so that a you know a future thalidomide um, would not uh, would not cause uh, you know the same kind of uh, of damage in the U.S. that that thalidomide caused um, you know fortunately mo- you know sort of mostly outside the U.S. but but mostly in Europe at that time. So um, you know I think that the the lesson there is that um, you know, uh, the medicine and the science is very complicated. Um, you know, drugs can have, um, you know, drugs can look good in, in the laboratory or in mice. Um, but when you test them in, in humans, um, you know, you can get much different effects of them. And so we really do need, you know, drugs are not, um, are not consumer products like any other simple consumer product, like, you know, skateboards or shampoo. Um, they're they're really complicated products, and we do need to test them um, you know sufficiently uh, in order to ensure the safety of of patients who are um, who are taking them. And so, um, you know that's been the basic the, the standards that were put in place after thalidomide have been the basic standards that have been in place, um, you know, for the last uh, you know all sixty years. and um, and I, you know, I think have done a fantastic job ensuring that, um, you know, there is some, some, you know, sort of basic testing done of, uh, of prescription drugs before they reach the market. And I think the concern, again, just to bring it back to adecanumab, the concern is that if we start to, um, you know, reduce the standards um, too much for the kind of testing that drugs go through, and we allow drugs on the market without demonstrating Um, you know, in in a convincing way that they work, then we risk going back to this, you know, pre-thalidomide market where pharmaceutical companies can put drugs out there with insufficient testing, which might be very dangerous for for the patients who who would um, consider taking them.
0: Some people are going to hear this and recall that the vaccination campaign is a vaccination campaign... Uh, for vaccines that do not have FDA approval. Um, I guess, what is would your response be to those who say, listen, we're living in a world where a lack of FDA approval is the thing that is that our government is telling us is, well, maybe not the lack of approval is saving us, but that there hasn't been a, a, an official approval of these vaccines and our government is telling us that we need to do this and this is helping uh, uh, protect us. From a pandemic like how does how does that experience that the country's having now relate to how we should view the necessity of the fda or or the argument that the fda isn't necessary? i'm not making that argument, but w- but what's your response
1: to that yeah, and you know I, I think that this is part of the issue of of like why you know the Atacanamab decision that, that is so important is because it undermines the trust that we have in the FDA's ability to make other decisions other of, of extreme public health importance and to be able to communicate those decisions appropriately to, to patients. Because, you know, in the case of the COVID vaccines, um, the, the, you know, those vaccines have been granted emergency use authorization by the FDA. But again, to the FDA's great credit in that case, the FDA required the companies that uh, are making those vaccines to subject those vaccines to very large, very rigorous trials before those emergency use authorizations were granted. And so the you know, there was a lot of political pressure. I'm sure you remember at the time there was a lot of political pressure from um, from the president at the time. Um, to you know, try to get those vaccines out in the market as quickly as possible without sufficient testing, and that would have been a disaster because that would have led to substantial lack of trust in those vaccines. Fortunately, the FDA held the line at that point and required companies to subject their COVID vaccines to um, rigorous testing. And so, when those vaccines were granted emergency use authorization, for example, we knew that the that the vaccines would substantially reduce the risk of of covid uh, of severe covid infection. and um in fact, uh, that is what those those vaccines have done. And so the vaccines, I think, are a story of the FDA doing a fantastic job requiring you know sufficient you know rigorous testing, not too much testing, not too little testing, but sufficient rigorous testing so that when those vaccines got approved, we have. You know, a lot of confidence that those vaccines um, will work, and people who want to take them. And, you know, obviously we need to do a better job making sure that more people are confident in the vaccines and getting the vaccines out to the people um, who are, you know, so far have been resistant for various reasons to taking it. Um, so, you know, I think, but I think that pro- part of the problem of the adacan- of of when the FDA makes extremely problematic decisions like the adicantab decision is that it, it 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 you know sort of throws. A lot of its other good decisions into into the same kind of into the same kind of light, and so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that I think that the um, the fact that the the vaccines haven't gotten formal uh, full FDA approval, um, you know, that is something that is ongoing, and that's actually not within the control of the FDA. That's something that the companies control when they submit a full dossier to the FDA, and. You know, I don't I think that the, the companies have not yet obviously done that or else the FDA would have granted these products full approval. And so we're still waiting uh, on that final step. But I think, uh, you know, I think that it really just gets back to the science itself and the science behind the products. And, you know, the science behind the vaccines is excellent. The science behind adecanumab is unfortunately really flawed. So one final question on this is for 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 those who maybe
0: are or aren't all that interested in the science of the Alzheimer's uh, uh, issue or the Alzheimer's drug that we're talking about or the I guess the alleged Alzheimer's drug that we're talking about, there are real budget implications for this. I mean, I've read that um, th- there's been a lot of speculation that Medicare may be footing the bill to pay for this Drug for uh, Medicare recipients, Medicare beneficiaries, uh, even though the drug, as you say, uh, really the question of whether it actually works is is still very much in question. If you know, tell us a little bit about what the budget implications could be in terms of how expensive this is, um, and what do you think physicians uh, who are treating uh, alzheimer 's patients, how do you think they're going to react because ultimately they're the ones who decide whether to prescribe or not prescribe uh, medicine, therapies, medicines like this.
1: Yeah, so the budget implications of this drug are massive. So um, we have a system in the United States where um, pharmaceuticals, basic uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, decide what price they want to sell products for. And um, as a result, in, in the United States, we pay far more for, um, for brand name drugs, uh, than any other, uh, comparable industrialized country, uh, in the world. And, uh, the reason for that is because we allow companies to set whatever price they want. And on the other hand, we require payers like, uh, Medicare, um, to pay for, uh, and cover all drugs, uh, and, and, in certain cases. And so, um, Atacanumab is one of those cases. You know, Medicare. Atacanumab is an infused drug. Um, most patients with Alzheimer's uh, disease who um, might qualify uh, for this, who might who might want to take this drug, um, are going to be uh, Medicare age, and Medicare Part B um, covers all drugs that that physicians prescribe. In in very rare circumstances, um, Medicare may impose certain um requirements um before a drug is uh is is administered for a part B um but that's relatively rare for infused medicines and we'll see if Medicare part B takes that step uh in this case meanwhile um you know uh biogen made the drug available at a price of about uh $56,000 per year um which is uh an uh, an, uh, an enormous price um Medicare Part B would be on the hook for about 80% of that cost, meaning that individual patients would have to pay um, about 20% of that cost. And some patients will have uh, additional, um, you know, what are called Medigap plans to cover that additional payment. Some some patients might, um, you know, qualify for Medicaid to cover the rest of that money, but other patients will have to pay for that out of pocket. Um, And meanwhile, taxpayers um, will have to foot the bill for um, for uh, the, the other 80 percent of that price through um, through Medicare. And so the um, the potential budget ramifications of this drug, even if a small number of this of the six million people in the U.S. with Alzheimer's disease take this drug, the potential budget implications are massive. I've seen estimates that, you know, even if a relatively small fraction of patients take it, this single drug, you know, could, um, you know, uh, cost as much as all the other drugs that that Medicare Part B pays for, or you know that it could out, it could be high, sort of larger than the budget for NASA um, for for just this one drug. Which, by the way, there is no convincing evidence that this drug works. Um, and uh, and it, even if it does work, it it doesn't it doesn't you know um, cure Alzheimer's disease or or you know increase your your cognitive function. It only um, maybe slows your cognitive function down a little bit, even if it does work, and there again, there is no good evidence that it does work. Um, independent evaluators have uh, have looked at the drug and said that a fair price uh, for the drug, Given what we know, even taking the, at most optimistically what we know about the about the drugs uh, the drugs potential effectiveness, uh, a fair price might be in the you know three to eight thousand dollars a year range, and, and Biogen made the drug available for fifty six thousand dollars a year. So the potential budget implications are massive, and it's just because we don't um, negotiate in the U S. the prices of uh, of brand name drugs, and um, you know I think that uh, you know Congress is right now considering whether. Uh, to implement um, drug pricing reform to try to ensure that we pay um, a fair price for uh, brand name drugs that's more commensurate with, um, you know, with prices that are negotiated in other uh, in other countries and and in other systems in the U.S. like it like in the VA where they where they negotiate prices and get much uh, much better prices for drugs. So um, I think the budget implications are, are going to be they're going to be the next conversation. Um, and you know, as you said that you know. This is this is now, you know, this drug being out here is now going to put a lot of pressure on physicians who are going to need to make decisions about um, whether or not to approve this drug. One of the crazy things about the approval of this drug um, was that the drug was tested in patients with early Alzheimer's disease, not in patients with moderate or advanced Alzheimer's disease. But when the FDA approved the drug, it didn't restrict on the labeling um to only patients with early Alzheimer's disease. And so theoretically physicians will have patients with moderate or severe Alzheimer's disease coming to them and asking them for this drug. And and you know physicians will need to try to make a decision about um, whether or not uh, you know whether or not they're gonna they're gonna prescribe this drug. Um, you know, I would say that certainly certainly physicians should only prescribe this drug for patients with early Alzheimer's disease who have evidence of amyloid plaques um, on their PET scans, which is um, you know, some of the criteria for um, for for enrolling in the trials themselves. Um, but then they also need to have discussions about this enormous risk for brain swelling or bleeding that that the drug provides as well. And as well, um, you know, physicians need to talk with patients about the extremely high cost um, that that patients might have to experience to um, to take this product of unclear importance. And so all of these things together, again, you know, to me, really point to, why it is that we need the FDA to have some, you know, reasonable standards for uh, for new drugs before they reach the market, and to make sure that um, that these standards are applied in a um, in a uh, in a you know in a consistent way um, and in a thoughtful way, and why we need to better understand um, problematic decisions like this one uh, to try to make sure that they don't happen again, because this is really, you know, on the whole, I think not not the right decision for, for patients.
0: And your point about you know drug prices just to go back to that it's something that we've reported on a lot and and the thing that always blows my mind is you know not only is it, it is it ridiculous that we're the only industrialized country that doesn't do some form of bulk negotiating and or price controls but the idea that we don't do that and other countries can access these brand name medicines the fact that they can access those brand name medicines with being able to negotiate lower prices, that's not the drug companies doing uh, charity to those other countries. Those The drug companies are still making a decent uh, profit and revenue in those countries, selling it at a lower price than they sell here, which means that what they're doing here in the United States is... Truly, uh, the right word is profiteering. I mean, it's not just profits, it is profiteering, and they've been allowed to do that forever. And as you suggest, this situation uh, is going to uh, potentially uh, create a, a really powerful lesson just on the pricing issue. And then you couple the fact that the exorbitant price is coupled with a drug that at best, is not clear that it even works. I mean, it is just kind of, kind of mind-blowing. Uh, Aaron Kesselheim, thank you so much for taking time today.
1: My pleasure, David. Thank you for having me.